Matthew chapter number 18 as we continue our study on the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be in a famous passage of scripture this morning. Looking forward to studying God's word together uh, with you. And it's great to see you today and great to see several guests with us. And I pray that this service will be an encouragement to your life and your Christian journey. Uh, if you are new with us, we'd really appreciate it if you'd reach in that seat back pocket in front of you. There's a connection card there. It just is a way for us to, uh, first of all, stay in touch with you. Secondly, for us to know if there's any spiritual or material needs that we might be able to pray with you, minister to you about. And uh, in the back of the auditorium, there's a box that says give here. And you can take those cards and drop them in there. And that would be a real help to us and hopefully a blessing to you as well. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 18, and we're going to begin our reading in verse number 15. We'll just read down through verse number 19, uh, excuse me, verse 20 this morning, but we'll study verses 15 through 35 in the message. The Bible says in Matthew 18, verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three, excuse me, if two or you of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Amen. I want to preach to you this morning on this subject, settling problems like Christians. Settling problems like Christians. December 25th, what an awesome day, right? How many of you are at Christmas is your favorite time of year? How many of you are like that, okay? Love Christmas, great time to celebrate with family, friends, celebrate our faith to remember our Lord Jesus Christ as we shower one another with love and blessings and gifts. However, there's a small town in the Peruvian mountains where December 25th looks quite a bit different. In Santo Tomas, Peru, each December 25th, they have host to a celebration of thousands of people. They dress in elaborate costumes, they eat and drink, and dance, and fist fight. That's right, it's an annual festival in Peru called Taka Nakui, which means to hit each other. In this Andean mountain community where there are very little presence or help of law enforcement, oftentimes disputes go unresolved in a peaceable manner throughout the course of the year. So. People will end up holding grudges against one another the entire year. However, on December 25th, everybody gathers together in a ring. And if you've got a grievance with somebody, that's right, you just duke it out. A fist fight. 
There's quite some extraordinary photos on this on the internet if you care to look it up later. But the whole idea of fist fighting it out on December 25th is that at the end of the fist fight, you go into the brand new year with a clean slate. Interestingly enough, this annual event in Peru sounds a lot like many churches and Christians. At least the fighting part. Unfortunately, unlike many Christians, these people find a way to let that be the end of their dispute and to go on and start fresh and move forward. While it is true that we do not need to resolve to fist fighting to solve our problems, there is a way to handle problems in a manner that would please the Lord Jesus Christ and continue to uphold and restore unity and peace in the body of Christ. Now I know this may not come as a shock to any of you this morning, but if you are alive, you will have problems. You will have people problems. And in many cases, we will have big people problems. If you do not find a way to apply biblical truth to these problems, you will find yourself at the end of your life a lonely person with a string of body bags behind you that house all the dead relationships that you once held dear. Jesus is going to address this issue in Matthew chapter number 18. He's going to teach us what we are supposed to do in the body of Christ when we have a problem with somebody else. And there's really two things that Jesus teaches us here. The first is found in verses 15 through 20, and the second is found in verses 21 through 35. So number one, I want you to see this. Now watch this. First of all, Christians face their problems. Christians face their problems. In a world where people stay incognito, hide, duck away from their problems, or worse yet, run to Facebook and anonymously try to handle all their problems, Christ teaches us that genuine believers that have the Spirit of God will find a way to go directly to someone in which there is a problem and face the problem directly. Look again at verse number 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, watch it, go and tell him his fault. James 5.16 reminds us that we are to confess our trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Matthew chapter 5 verse 23 says it like this. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First, watch it, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So Matthew 18 says, if a brother is sinned against you, you should go to them. In Matthew chapter 5 it says, if you have sinned against a brother, you should go to them. And when you put the two things together, this is the truth. The truth is there are many people that come to church every single Sunday morning. They sing offerings of worship. They give offerings of money. But listen very carefully. They are wasting their time. Because if you are living in unresolved conflict, if you are living in sin against another brother, if you have failed to go directly to that person in an attempt to solve your problems and bring restitution and reconciliation to the problems that you have entered into, you, my friend, may as well not even be here today. 
It reminds me of what Isaiah chapter number 1 says about people who worship in vain while they keep sin in their life. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God's really pleased with us just because we go to church when the fact of the matter is the presence of Christ is not ruling and dictating what's going on in our lives? Do you think that if Christ is not the Lord of your home, if there's continual and undealt with marital conflicts in your relationship, if there are continual and unresolved uh, uh, conflicts and relationships between you and your children or your children and you or you and a neighbor down the street or you, quite frankly, and somebody that you go to church with or used to go to church with, Do we actually think that somehow by going to church, by singing songs, by singing hymns, by giving gifts, that that somehow exempts us from what the Bible plainly tells us to do in this text, which is this. Go and face your problems directly. Furthermore, don't just face them directly, face them exclusively. Notice again in verse number 15, go and tell, not run and hide, but also go and tell him his fault. Watch this now, between you and him alone. If someone is not part of the problem and not part of the solution, they should not be part of the conversation. If you don't do it that way, then you fall prey to what the Bible plainly speaks against, which is called gossip and evil speaking. Gossip and evil speaking have ruined families, ruined relationships, ruined churches. And somebody has got to speak up and say something about it. The definition of gossip is simply this, saying something about someone that you wouldn't say to the same someone. I'll speak about them, but I will not speak to them. And the Bible sounds off uh, strongly about this evil sin of gossip. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16, You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor, for I am the Lord. Proverbs 10, verse 18, Whoever spreads slander is a fool. Proverbs 11.9, the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous shall be delivered. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate yourself with a simple babbler. Now folks, I could go on this morning with strong warnings about people who handle problems by taking their problems to everywhere else except for the source of the problem. And how how prone are we to do this? Sometimes we do it in a passive-aggressive way on things like social media. Look, uh, don't ever go on social media and start your statement something like this. Don't you hate it when someone dot, 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 dot. That's a dangerous, cowardly way to handle your problems. What God teaches us here in the Bible is that we ought to have the courage enough and the presence of Christ enough in our lives that there's an actual problem existing between us and someone else, we should be willing to go directly to them and we should be willing to go to them and them alone in order to handle the problem. Now, I realize in this culture that we live in, people don't treat church the way they used to. And it's sad. Many people do not treat church like the family that God intends it for it to be. There may be a hundred reasons why you don't feel like you're a part of the family. It may be that you volunteered to be disconnected to fellowship groups or be disconnected uh, to opportunities to serve or whatever. I don't know why I can explain it, but I can't explain it like this. It used to be that there was far less church moving in churches than there is today. And 
far more dealing with problems or even talking about problems. In fact, I read an article several months ago called uh, uh, Comfort for the Ghosted Pastor. I just want you to listen to this. He says, I quote, they join your church. You minister to them with the proclamation of God's word week in and week out. You pray for them regularly, send them notes on their birthday, and keep them up to date with all the happenings of the church. They sit across the desk in your office for counseling. You've taken them to eat or to coffee. You visit them in the hospital. You go to their kids' ball games. You officiate their weddings and their funerals. And then, boom, in the blink of an eye, they disappear as if they no longer lived on planet Earth. They didn't die. They didn't move away. They just ghosted you. They just block you. Just don't talk to you. They just act like you never existed. He says, I talked to a pastor friend that found himself in a similar situation. He said, I saw someone in a restaurant last week who passed us like strangers. My daughter was there and she recalled to me how 10 years ago, I was in the emergency room when her husband died unexpectedly. Boom. Ghosted. It can be especially difficult in the wake of the pandemic when LifeWay Research found out that pastors were concerned with caring for members from a distance maintaining and maintaining congregational unity and health and safety for their people all while dealing with personal ex exhaustion. Yet ghosting happens to all of us. We preach the gospel, love people, minister to people, have relationships with people, pray for one another, visit one another, and all of a sudden, people disappear into thin air. They don't return calls. They, you see the read receipts on your text messages, and they ignore. It just simply hurts. And I'm not just saying this personally as a pastor. I'm saying this to all of you. Listen, this is no way to handle your problems. Running from your problems is no way to succeed in life. Finding a way that Christ has given us the strength to look someone in the face, to have a conversation, to say I'm sorry, to ask for forgiveness, and to bring the love of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of forgiveness into our life and the ability to move on after a wrong has been done is the essence of Christianity, folks. If we can't get there, we are not even on first base as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Your problems directly. He also says, face your problems, if necessary, corporately. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. There are some times that there might be a conflict that is so severe or unresolvable that the two parties that are offended need to enlist the help of the church family to bring a resolution. This happened in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. The Bible says, I entreat Euodius and I treat Syntyche that they agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Her names are in the book of life. Sometimes it's necessary to enlist the help of other people. Sometimes you just can't get to the bottom of it. Sometimes there's just no ability to, to resolve. There's, it's not within the two people. They need advice. They need counsel. They need help. By the way, the Bible also strongly warns us that if we are in a dispute over something financial or over something as it relates to property, we should not take those unresolved issues to court to air out our dirty laundry in front of the world. 1 Corinthians 6.1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? What a shame. 
What a shame to see two Christians that can't decide or an agreement about a car that was sold or a property that was rented. And instead of dealing with it like Jesus would have you deal with it, you end up taking it to court. And now some unsaved judge is watching two people that have the presence of Christ in their life that couldn't figure out how to even solve a simple dispute. 1 Corinthians 6 goes on to say, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and before an unbeliever? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The point is this. Hey, listen, is that money really that important? Is that house really that important? Is that car really that important that you would destroy a church and destroy a family and destroy a relationship? How many understand? People are far more important than properties and people are far more important than money. And we've kind of got our priorities a little backwards, don't we? We'd rather destroy someone than deal with the personal loss. Here's a rule of thumb, by the way, about loaning money biblically. Don't do it. But if you do, do it being willing to walk away from it. Do it being willing to walk away it. People are more important than properties. How many people have been ruined over the dissemination of a will? Over a few thousand dollars. Come on. Over a minor family dispute, over the way something wasn't handled or done. This is immaturity at its pinnacle. This is exactly not the way the people are supposed to act like those people who know Christ is Savior. So face your problems directly. Face your problems corporately. Finally, face your problems hopefully. Look, if you will, verse number 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three agree uh, on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. There's the hope we have. The hope we have is this, that if you are in an unresolved relationship, if you are in a broken relationship, if you've allowed something to get between you and somebody else, here's the promise that we have. If you will just deal with it, you have a restored hope of answered prayer, of unity. And how many of you don't want that in your life? Wouldn't you like to take that conflict and replace it with unity, joy, and the promise of answered prayer? By the way... The text says here, if it is bound on earth, it is bound in heaven. Meaning, if your relationship is bound up, if there's something going on right now that is unresolved, you're not budging, it's in a knot, it's not moving, guess what else is bound up? Heaven is bound up. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Do you realize this morning that it's possible to have a relationship bound up on earth that causes your relationship with God to be bound up between here and heaven? That's not where anybody wants to be. But here's the promise. If we'll make it right, if we'll take the steps, if we'll humble ourselves, if we'll resolve the conflict, guess what? God says, I will restore the hope of blessing again to your relationships. I was at a pastor's conference a few weeks ago speaking and I one of the sessions I sat in on and another pastor was sharing a story about how there was a man in his church that every Sunday 
blessed the pastor with an email telling him all the things that he did wrong in the service that day. What a treat. Thank the Lord for people like that, okay? And so he said he got this happened. It was a church plant, and so he, he was struggling. He didn't want to say anything. The guy, frankly, was a giver, and he was faithful in his service to the Lord. And he just said, man, I just didn't have the courage to say something. He said, finally, after several years of this, I just got tired of it, and I realized he was not just doing this to me. He was starting to hurt other people. He said, finally, I got the courage and the guts to write a letter and read it to him. So I called him to my office, and I read it out and told him that he was destroying the body of Christ, and I thought it was time for him to find a new church. He just laid him right out. He said the guy melted. Melted right in his seat. Burst into tears. Broke down in humility. Apologized to the pastor. He said the guy did a 180 from that meeting. He said people were coming in from the church saying, have you noticed the difference in so and so? And them? Have you seen this? And became one of the most supportive people in that church in New Mexico before that pastor left to go to Colorado. You know, sometimes the problem is we're just not willing to face the problem. And if we would just face the problem, there may be a resolution. The worst thing that you can do is to march on in a relationship without doing what God has plainly told you to do in this text. Face your problems. Number two, not only should Christians face their problems. Secondly, Christians should forgive others. Look, if you will, at verse number 21, almost anticipating uh, uh, that, that Peter would find himself in some unusually tough situations by needing to go directly face somebody that he's wronged or has wronged him. Peter's going to speak up in response to verse 21. He's going to say this. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? That's a pretty good question. What is Christian forgiveness? Christian forgiveness is the canceling of debts... Or the release of obligations, the revoking of revenge, and the determination to repay good for any evil that has been given to us. That's what Christian forgiveness is. It is when you no longer are playing the part of judge, jury, and executioner. It is when even if something horrible has been done to you, you at least take your hands off of the responsibility to deal with it by poisoning people with bitterness and anger and frustration and you release it to God. That's what forgiveness means. Peter asked the question, I'm in this situation, how many times should I forgive the seven? And some have argued that the number seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. I'm not so sure how deep I get into numerology and all that stuff. I just think this is just a general question. How often shall I forgive my brother until seven times? And you may say, well, I think it's numerology. Okay, that's fine. Then what does 70 times seven mean? Oh. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know either. You don't either. Okay. Seven. Okay, say it's the number of perfection. Perfect forgiveness. Fine. Say it's just a number. Seven. It's a lot. How many times is... Somebody need to do you wrong seven times? That seems fair. Somebody stole from you seven times in a row? Your spouse did something stupid seven times, and I mean like hopefully less than in one day? What is Christ teaching us here about forgiveness? Peter asked the question. 
How long, how many times should my brother sin against me? Look, if you will, at verse number 22, Jesus is going to give an answer. I do not say unto you up to seven times, but, unto, but up to 70 times seven, 490 times. Now, let me ask you guys a thinking question here. Do you think Jesus was actually talking about 490 times? Or do you think Jesus was probably doing something like this? Quit keeping score. So what do we learn here about forgiveness? Forgiveness is unlimited. Forgiveness is unlimited. And before you start thinking questions like, well, I mean, just how far does this thing go? Then maybe I'll ask you this question. How far does it go between you and God? Come on. Matthew 12, 31, therefore I say unto you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven of men. Or Psalm 118, verses 1 through 4, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Come on. Let the house of Aaron say, his mercy endures forever. Let those that fear the Lord say, his mercy endures forever. How much mercy and forgiveness is there with God? Well, it endures forever. Psalm 136, get this, has 26 verses in it. Every verse ends with this statement, his mercy endures forever. You're supposed to forgive without limit. Now, I know there may be some questions in the room. Wait a second. That is incredibly hard. Let me stop and say this. Let me tell you what forgiveness does not mean. Lest you think that forgiveness is like a magic wand. You rub over something and everything's okay. That's not what forgiveness is. In fact, let me make a few statements of what forgiveness doesn't mean. Number one, forgiveness doesn't mean you will forget anything. Forgive and forget, you know, that would be good if you were God and you had the capacity to do that. Like I'll cast my, your sin in the, de- the sea of my forgetfulness, but here's the deal, you're a human. To tell somebody forgive and forget, that's impossible. There's certain things you're never going to forget. They're never going to be erased from your mind. So forgiveness doesn't mean you have to forget about it. Number two, forgiveness does not mean that your pain is gone. Forgiveness does not mean you have to wait until it feels okay to do it. Forgiveness number three, and this is very important for many of you who've heard it taught the wrong way. Forgiveness is not an instantaneous victory. You can forgive in a moment. You can release the debt. But let me tell you, you will likely battle the sin and the struggle of forgiveness for days, weeks, maybe even years. By the way, forgiveness does not mean that you cannot expect justice to be executed. Meaning, let's say somebody did a crime against you. That does not mean that when you forgive a person that that person still cannot experience the punishment for their crime. You ever had this happen with your kids? I hope you have. Your kids do something wrong. They receive a punishment. They ask for forgiveness. And then what do you say to them? That doesn't mean necessarily that we're changing the consequence of that behavior. It just means I've forgiven you. I'm not holding that wrong against you any longer. Church, let me give us to you the bottom line here. Here's the simplistic view of forgiveness. Forgiveness just simply means that you are taking yourself off of the judge's bench. And you're allowing God to sit in the judge's bench. Vengeance is mine, right? I will repay. I know it's not 
easy. I know sometimes that's difficult. I know with every fiber of who we are, sometimes we just want to stand in that bench and, and execute justice because maybe God's not doing it fast enough for us or maybe we just don't trust that God is able or capable to do it. But let me tell you something, friend. Whatever suffering or difficulty you experience in this life, and maybe some of it will never end at all, can I just say it to you? There is an ending point to all suffering. Come on. There's an ending point to all wrongdoing. There is a time where all justice will ultimately be served. Why? Because we're all going to stand before God and we're all going to give an account and he will right every wrong one day. One day. And until then, take the judge's robe off. What do you do when people don't want to forgive you or will not even talk to you? True forgiveness is not satisfied, listen, simply with the canceling of the debt, it longs to love again. It's important to remember two things here. Listen, first, the offending party may refuse your overtures of kindness and resist any efforts on your part to reconcile. But ultimately, that's out of your control. Hold yourself hostage to somebody who won't pick up the phone and talk to you. If you've extended the grace, if you've extended the kindness... If you've asked for forgiveness, if you've done everything you can, guess what? You've done everything you can. And what do you do now? Step back and trust God. You didn't do anything wrong. If that person won't follow Christ and obey them, you're not responsible for them. You're only responsible for you. Hmm. Now, true Christian forgiveness is unlimited. Secondly, listen very carefully. True Christian forgiveness is Christ-like. It's Christ-like. Why do we forgive? Simple short answer, Bible test and Bible 101. You forgive because Jesus forgave you. You forgive because you as a Christian know what forgiveness is all about. We are kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Haven't you done unspeakable crimes against God? Haven't you repeatedly broken his law? Aren't you deserving of his wrath? Somebody better help me up here. That would be all of us here. There's not a person in this room that if you got what you deserved, wouldn't end up in a devil's hell for all of eternity. But I'm glad, come on, I'm glad that at Calvary I settled out of court. I'm glad I didn't have to go to the judgment. I'm glad that Christ absorbed it for me. Aren't you? Aren't you glad that you deserve the worst of the wrath of God but will experience none of it? And that's exactly what this parable is all about. Now, I'm not going to read it all for sake of time this morning, but here's the point. Christ tells a story. Answering Peter's question, there's no limit to forgiveness. He says there's a guy out in the kingdom who owed another guy a certain amount of money. A relatively small amount of money. And he held that man responsible to imprisonment, to torture, and subjugated him to awful consequences for his sin. And here's the problem. The problem was that same guy who was holding this man responsible for a very small amount of money to that degree was just recently forgiven an incalculable debt by the king. 
He just heard that he was forgiven of that incalculable debt by the king. Then he goes out and goes immediately to that man that owed him money and literally put his hands around his his neck and strangled him and refused to have compassion. The same compassion he just received. And in this unthinkable parable, here's what Christ is basically trying to teach us. You are that servant that was forgiven that great debt by the king. How could you go out and hold somebody hostage and essentially strangle them for a much lesser debt? Meaning, nothing that has ever been done to you comes even close to comparison to what you've done to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the height of unthinkable atrocity is a Christian who refuses to forgive knowing that they have been so freely given. I've told this story before, but it's fitting. Some of you know, I've told this story about Pastor Kasmer down in Haiti. He was robbed of a lot of land right beside of his house. The first time I went to Haiti, I was up on this rooftop looking at this empty lot, and I asked him, hey, man, why don't we buy this. It's right next door. This would be great. He said, I did, but I lost my money. And he told me the story. Things are different in Haiti, obviously. And this man that owned the property sold the property to two different people, but only deeded the property to one. And he could have followed a paper trail and probably could have taken it to court, but Pastor Kasmer absorbed the loss. At that time that I was there, I believe it was about seven years after it happened. Seven years. Seven years a man stole a piece of property that he paid $10,000 for. For seven years he absorbed the loss. Three years later, on my third or fourth trip to Haiti, I walked down the street about seven houses down from that empty lot to a lot that was probably five times the size of the one right beside of his house where they had already brick the wall and we're beginning the plans of building the children's home that we're now furnishing as we speak. That lot was owned by the same man that stole the small lot from him 10 years before. 10 years later, the man feels bad about it. He comes and apologizes to Pastor Kazmer and gives Pastor Kazmer a property that's over five times the size of the original one for free. I think God's able, don't you? Can you just see Pastor Casimir strangling this man for that $10,000? Throwing him in jail, taking him to court, raising a scene about it. By the way, $10,000 to Pastor Casimir is like a million dollars to us. And he walked away and trusted God, and God gave the favorable increase. My question to you this morning is this, have you ever personally experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life? If this is unthinkable, if knowing that you need to forgive others is just unthinkable, just completely out of your periphery, you just cannot process it, maybe it's because you've never personally experienced the forgiveness of Christ yourself. Number two, is there a situation in your life that you need to face? Quit running from it. Quit ghosting people. Quit walking away from your problems. Is there there a person in your life that you need to forgive? 
Is there grace you need to extend? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will bless.